Anybody in here like playing Monopoly? Any Monopoly players? Okay, what about maybe uh, Settlers of Catan? My family, we like, we like playing that. That takes like eight hours though. You gotta be really committed to start a game of Settlers of Catan. So, okay, so I guess maybe you play some different board games then. Um, how, how many of you guys like reading the rules beforehand? You're a rule follower. You're gonna read that manual before you play the game. No, okay, okay, couple of you, all right. How many of you then, the rest of you, how many just, you like to play the game, just figure it out as you go? Anybody else like that? Okay, some of us are like that. You like just making up the rules. You've got your own house rules, right? You got your own house rules. So it's just whatever works for you, whatever works for your family, right? I mean, and and that's what's awful about the oldest or the biggest, the strongest, the, the most popular, making the rules to the game. A lot of times it's the, the oldest, the biggest, the strongest, the bully on the block, right? That, that sets the rules for the game. And when their rules or when the game's not going away, they want it to go, what do they do? They change the rules, right? They change the rules so that they can win the game, right? I, I mean, and, and that, that's what we do. We, we, we change the rules. We make up the rules. I, we, my kids got this taco, rubber thro- taco throwing game. I, I can't remember what it's called, but they're like, hey, dad, come play with this. And so I go and sit down and, and they're trying to explain the rules. And I'm just like, nah, let's just, you know, let's just figure it out as we go. And, and, and so we're, we're playing this game and there's these cards and you're laying and dealing these cards. And, and then you get into these duels and wars with these rubber tacos where you're trying to hit people with them. It was, it was a lot of fun, but we just we kind of figured it out as we went. We made up some of our own rules, right? And some of you are like, I can't stand that. Like, yeah, I don't like you people that just make up the rules as you go. Wouldn't it be nice? Let me just think about this. Wouldn't it be nice if there was some sort of, I don't know, absolute standard of right and wrong uh, that was a guide for our lives uh, that, I don't know, never changed? You know, wouldn't that be nice if we had something like that to like, guide us and tell us, you know, what we should do and what we shouldn't do. I mean, wouldn't that be amazing? Some of you are like, no, that didn't sound amazing at all. I don't, I don't like the idea of that. In fact, I don't really believe in what you Christians call this absolute standard of truth. And that's what Christians believe in the, the, the Bible is. It's our absolute standard of, of right and wrong, of truth and error. That's what a Christian believes. And some of you are here and you're like, I'm not, I'm not too into that. I don't, I don't like this idea of an absolute standard of right and wrong. I like, you know, kind of coming up with what's right and wrong for me. And some people believe that. Maybe, maybe you're one of them. You, can't, you just can't get there on an absolute standard of truth. Well, today, I wanna show you why, even if you don't believe in an absolute standard of truth, of right and wrong, why you should want there to be one, even if you can't quite get there, even if you're not too sure what to think about that. Why it would actually be in your best interest if there is an absolute standard of truth, an absolute standard of right and wrong. My hope is, is by the end of our time together today, even if you don't agree with me that there is an absolute standard of truth that you would like for there to be, you would want there to be, you wish maybe that there was an absolute standard of truth because you're going to see the benefits of having an absolute standard of truth today. And when we don't have one, what are we left to do, right? We're left to fight it out, to argue it out. 
Because we don't have this absolute standard of right and wrong that never changes. We're left into majority opinion, devoting things in, devoting things out. And that brings what? Argument and strife, right? And we're fighting against one another. We're trying to figure out, you know, you, you think what you, you believe and I believe what I believe. And, and, and that's what's happening in our, our country today is this argument about what's right and wrong. What, what we should do in our country, what the government should and, and shouldn't do. And Paul said, and that's what we've been saying in this series, Paul said in Galatians chapter 5, verse 15, if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. And that's what's happening in our culture today. Biting and devouring one another. These arguments, a lot of it over what's right, what's wrong. And in doing so, we're devouring one another. It's happening even in our churches. Christians are devouring one another as they argue, as they bite, and as they devour one another. But you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to live differently. We're called to act differently. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Above all, you, follower of Jesus, Christian, you are to live, look at this, as citizens of heaven. So first and foremost... If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a citizen of heaven. And that citizenship takes priority and precedent over any other citizenship of any country on this earth. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're to live, Paul says, above all as citizens of heaven. In week one, we talked about what this is. As citizens of heaven, we are citizens of the city of our God, the new Jerusalem that's gonna come down out of heaven one day to this earth, a new earth, a new city. We're gonna have new bodies and that's where we're gonna be for all of eternity with Jesus. In the new Jerusalem, this new city on a new earth with new glorified spiritual bodies. That's where we will be for all eternity. So we're citizens of that city, the new Jerusalem, the city of our God. And that citizenship, watch this, informs, always informs our earthly citizenship. Our heavenly citizenship informs our earthly citizenship. And so that applies to our politics, but it also applies to our conduct. Paul said in Philippians chapter one, we just read, live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourself in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. That's what citizens of heaven do. That's how we're to live. We're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. And so that goes for our politics, for how we act, for how we vote, for what we believe. And so in this series, we've been saying, what is this way that is worthy of the gospel? What is this conduct that is worthy of the gospel? And we said, well, if it's worthy of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, we should probably look at the life of Jesus. And so we saw this in John chapter one in week one of this series. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So Jesus has always existed and through him, all things were made without him. Nothing was made that has been made. So Jesus has always existed and Jesus creates everything in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. You need to pay attention to this word today. This is where we're going to be headed here in just a second. Jesus was the light of all mankind and the light shines in the darkness. So this light exposes the darkness and it brings light to the dark places and the darkness has not overcome it. The word became flesh. So Jesus was God. He created everything. And when he was born on this earth through the Virgin Mary, he was born 
as God in the flesh. We said in week one, as God in a bod, right? God took on flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so we said, Jesus didn't pick sides. He came alongside. He made his dwelling among us, among all of us, among his enemies even. So Jesus didn't pick sides. He came alongside. He made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of, let's say this together, grace and truth. All right, let's do it again. Came from the father full of grace and truth. That's Jesus. Jesus was full, John 1 says, of grace and truth. And so here's what we've said. Here's the kind of the big idea in this series. Citizens of heaven conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And that means we are people. We are citizens of both and, not either or, both and. We said that in week one. Last week we said citizens are people of grace. This week, here's what I want you to see. Citizens of heaven are people of truth. And you can follow along now with this in the app. You can fill in the blank with these words here in all caps. It's a great way to be engaged and to make the most out of our time here together. You can download our app, the City Church Lubbock, in your app store. And the verses and the points, all those things will be there for you today. And you can email yourself those notes later uh, when we're done. So people of truth. So if we're going to be people of truth, we got to look and see how Jesus lived this out. So if you got your Bible, go to John chapter four or scroll down on the app to John chapter four. The verses will be on the screen here in just a second as well. John chapter four. Let me set this up for you. Jesus is going through Samaria to get to Jerusalem. If you're here last week, you remember why that was important, right? Because most Jews would go around Samaria to get to Jerusalem. They didn't want to interact with Samaritans. They didn't want to converse with them. They didn't want to eat dinner with them. They didn't want to stay with them, which was what they would have had to do if they went through Samaria. And so to avoid, to put distance, remember, distance between them and the sinners, right? Those they didn't like, those they didn't agree with, those they didn't vote like, those they didn't believe the same way they did. So they didn't, so they could put distance between them and those people, the Samaritans. They would go around Samaria. They would take the long way around to get to Jerusalem. Well, not Jesus. As we saw last week, Jesus wants to eat dinner with sinners. And so he goes through Samaria and he's engaging with and conversing with these Samaritans, just like he would do anyone. Well, he encounters this woman at a well and he starts talking with her and they begin in this discussion about water. Jesus asks her for a drink. And then Jesus tells her, if you knew who you were actually talking to, you would be asking me for a drink because I've got water no one else can give you. This water is special. The water I'll give you, you'll never thirst again. You'll drink from me, you'll never thirst again. So watch this, John chapter four, pick up with me in verse 13. Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Jesus is saying, listen, the world and the things of this world will never satisfy you. You can drink from them, you can eat from them over and over and over again, and they will never leave you satisfied. They will always leave you hungering and thirsting for more because you were not designed for the things of this world. You were designed for the things of heaven, the things of God. And so the things of this world will always leave you empty and dry. And Jesus says, you're just going to keep wanting more and more and more. And it will never be enough because they will never fulfill you. The things of this world will never fulfill you. They will leave you empty every time. But Jesus says, whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. I've got a water that you can drink from me and you will never thirst again. You will be satisfied. You will be complete. You will be whole. You will experience joy and peace. If you'll drink 
from me, Jesus says. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So not only will you have abundant life if you drink from me, you will receive eternal life if you will drink from me. If you will take the water that I have to offer, abundant life, eternal life, they're yours. You'll never thirst again. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. I need what you've got, Jesus. Give me this water. I need that because I've been drinking from this well and I keep getting thirsty again. You're right, Jesus. These things have never satisfied me. I have this longing in my soul for more. I need the water that you're talking about so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw this water. And he told her, go, call your husband and come back. That's interesting, right? I need this water, Jesus. Give me this water that I'll never thirst again. Go, go get your husband, Jesus says. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you were right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. Other translations say the man you're living with now is not your husband. So isn't this interesting? Jesus, I've got water You'll never thirst again. I will complete you. I will satisfy you. I will give you the joy and the peace that you're longing for, the contentment that you're longing for in your soul that this world will never give you. I need that water, Jesus. Give me that water. What would you expect to happen next? Not this. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. You're living with someone you're not married to. Isn't that interesting? I've got water, you'll never thirst again. I need that water. Here's how you get the water. Go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Jesus, you had her. She, she wanted your water. Now you're pushing her away. You're getting all up in her business. What are you doing, Jesus? What? This isn't what we would expect from him. Why, why are you judging her, Jesus? Why are you getting up in her business? Why are you talking about the brokenness, the pain, the wounds in her life? She wants the water. Give her the water. Isn't this interesting? What do you think happens next? You, you would expect an encounter like this for the woman to say, forget it. I don't, what, you're, you're, you're getting all of them in my life. I don't, I don't want what you've got. That's what we think would happen next. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you, will, when, we, when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. But we, we Jews, we worship what we do know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers, so there's true worshipers and there's false worshipers, will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. 
And the woman said, I know the Messiah, the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and she told all the people, man, this Jesus guy is out of control. He's all up in my business. He's talking about the things that are going on in my life. He's talking about all the wrong things that we do and the wrong ways that we, that we worship. We got to get rid of this Jesus guy, right? I mean, that's what we would imagine would have happened next. Watch what she says. Come and meet this man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. And many of the Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer just believe because of what you said, now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. I've got living water. You'll never thirst again. I need that water, Jesus. You want the water? Okay, then let's talk about the brokenness in your life. Let's talk about the pain. Let's talk about the wounds. Let's talk about the wrong way you've been worshiping God. What? Then she leaves and her life's changed. Come, come, you gotta come see this guy. He told me everything I ever did. This, this story does not go the way we think it should go at every step and at every turn. And so this morning, I want you to learn the truth about the truth and why the truth is what you really need and why the truth is your best and it will bring your ultimate satisfaction and joy. So the truth about the truth, number one, the truth is truly offensive. And we've got to realize that. We, we've got to just be real about that. The truth is truly offensive. Jesus says, you've had many husbands and the man you're living with now isn't your husband. Then he goes to starts talking to her about how there's a right way to worship God and a wrong way to worship God. We said this last week. We'll say it again this week. Jesus wasn't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. Jesus loved hanging out with sinners. He took sinners to dinner, but Jesus also wasn't afraid to call a sinner a sinner. And that's true with the gospel too. The gospel is offensive. The cross is offensive. It's offensive because when I come to Jesus and in order to have a relationship with God, the Bible says I've got to confess that I've sinned and I've fallen short of God's standard, have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when we die. And then it gets worse. I've got to confess and understand and realize that because I've broken God's law, I've got to pay God's fine. And God's fine for sin is eternity separated from him in a place called hell where people are eternally punished for their sin. That is offensive. It just is. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't feel good. It's offensive. Then there's more. The gospel says if I want my sin to be forgiven and I want to be made right with God, I want to go to heaven when I die, then I got to give my life to Jesus and there's no other way to heaven but through him. 
Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to heaven except through me. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord because he said he was the only way to heaven. There's no other way around it. He wasn't a good teacher. He wasn't a great guy that said some good things. No, he was either a liar, he was a lunatic, or he is who he said he is. He is Lord, he's the son of God, and he's the only way to heaven. But that's offensive. To say that there's one way to heaven and it's only through Jesus is offensive. We gotta be real about that. We've gotta understand that. In John chapter one, Jesus is called the light of all mankind. The Bible often uses light as a metaphor for truth. And Jesus said, I'm the truth. Describing disobedience and distance from God is darkness. Darkness, in John 1, has not understood or overcome the light. In John chapter 3, Jesus says this, men love darkness instead of light. And so we hate the light and we won't come into the light for fear that our deeds will be exposed. Jesus says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, embraces the light, embraces the truth. There's an old movie called A Few Good Men. So old, back in the, you know, way olden, olden times, right? That's the way my kids say. Back in the old days, you know, back in the olden times, that's what they say, you know, when you were a kid. I'm like, Levi, bud, the olden days were not when I was a kid, okay? Now, it's when your grandparents were kids. Now, that was the olden days, okay? That's the olden times. Not, not when I was a kid. That, but, but back in the olden days, there was a movie called A Few Good Men, and uh, Tom Cruise was in it, and it's when he was really young and, you know, had that Top Gun body, and he was all in his nice uniform, and he's the lawyer in this movie, and he's prosecuting Colonel Jessup, remember? And he stomps his foot and his fist, remember in the movie, and he says, I want the truth! And what does Colonel Jessup say? You can't handle the truth, right? You can't handle the truth. And that's true. That in and of itself is true. We can't handle the truth because the truth is offensive. And so what do we do? We run from the truth. We run from the light for fear that our deeds will be exposed. Paul told Timothy and gave him this warning in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said this, preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. In other words, Timothy, people aren't always going to like what you have to say. It's not always going to be popular. So whether it's favorable or not, whether people like it or not, you've got to preach the word of God. Paul told Timothy, patiently, watch this, correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. I think a lot of us are like, I'd rather be encouraged. Thank you very much. I don't know about this correction and this rebuking that you're talking about, Paul. I like to be encouraged. I don't know about you. I mean, I love when people encourage me, you know? That's so great. It feels so good. Now that re rebuking and that correcting, no, I don't, I don't want none of that, right? Because we, can't, we, don't, we don't like the truth. For the time is coming, Paul says, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching, they won't be able to handle the truth. They will follow their own desires and they will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Why? Because they can't handle the truth. 
And so what do we typically do when we're faced with the truth? When the light exposes the darkness in our life, we run. We want to run from conviction. Oh, that's condemning. You're condemning me. You're judging me. No, maybe it's just the Holy Spirit convicting you. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Listen, if you're never uncomfortable, if your toes are never stepped on by me or by the word of God, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a bad spot if you're never convicted. You're in a bad spot if you're never letting the word of God correct you and rebuke you. If all you're about is encouragement and being inspired and being lifted up, you're in a bad spot. You're gonna be led astray. Because the word of God will encourage you, but it will also correct you and rebuke you. And Jesus said, one of the things the Holy Spirit will do is convict you of sin and righteousness. So if that's what the Holy Spirit does, when you run from conviction and you run away from the light because you're afraid of the light exposing the dark things in your life, when you're running from conviction, you're actually running towards darkness. You're running away from the direction of the Holy Spirit in your life. When you run from Conviction. This woman embraced the truth. She came into the light. She didn't run from her conviction and it changed her life forever. Yes, the truth is offensive. We can't get around that. Truth by its definition, by its very nature, is offensive. But this woman embraced the truth. She didn't run from it. And it changed her life forever. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. We need the light. We need the truth so that we can know which way to go. Which leads us to number two. The truth is truly true. It's the right answer. Like there's wrong answers and there's right answers. And the truth in God's word is the right answer. Jesus said, you guys worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. The father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. In other words, there's a way to worship and follow and love God. And there's ways to not follow love and worship God. And we don't get to come up with those ways. It's not up to us. We don't get to determine that. A pilot might really believe that south is north. But that doesn't make it true, and it won't get him any closer to his destination. Until he recognizes true north, he's hopelessly lost. And when you have a right answer, when you have a right direction, by definition, answers that disagree with the right answer are always wrong. Let me explain it to you like this. Two plus two equals four. Four is the right answer. Every other answer is wrong. Why? Because they don't equal four. When you've got a right answer, every answer that disagrees with your right answer is wrong. And so we must base our opinions and actions on what is true, not merely our preferences or feelings or ideas. Why? Because the scripture says our hearts are deceitful above all else. We can't trust our hearts. People will say, just follow your heart. That's the worst advice anyone could ever give you. Don't follow your heart, okay? Don't follow your heart. Because your heart is deceitful, the scripture says. It's wicked above all else. Who can trust it? Isaiah says. You can't. You can't trust your heart. You can't trust your feelings. 
Then Romans 1 says our minds come up with foolish thoughts about who God is and what he's like and what he wants. So we can't trust our own intellect and our own ideas. One of the most famous verses in all the scriptures, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, which says this, don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. God's ways are not our ways. And we deceive ourselves when we think we know better than God. So popular opinion, majority rule, they don't determine what's right and what's wrong. And when it comes to politics, watch this. For a Christian, a citizen of heaven, scripture determines your stance every time. Citizens of heaven, followers of Jesus, don't come up with their own ideas. We're not, we don't come up with our own beliefs. The scripture determines our stance every time on every issue, regardless of the way it makes us feel. And we definitely don't do it the other way around. That's dangerous. We don't take our stance and then go to the scripture to find verses to back up what we believe. That's bad biblical interpretation. That's not the way we understand and read the Bible. We read the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We find out what the Bible is saying and then that forms our stance. That's correct biblical interpretation. Interpreting the scripture in context. And we find out what all of the scripture says and that's how we form our stance. We've got to make sure our positions have biblical roots rather than being controlled by a political party or ideology. Our opinions must be based on biblical standards and not dependent on human ideas. Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 8, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we demolish arguments in every pretense that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought and we make it obedient to Christ. So Paul actually says we're, we demolish arguments in every pretense that stand up against the knowledge of our God. Paul told Timothy and Titus, Peter says it in 1 Peter, that we are to be faithful to the message that we've received in the scripture. And Paul would say over and over and over again, if you hear anything that's different from what we've told you here in the scripture, if you hear anything different from what we've told you, that person is a false prophet and that message is a false gospel. How, how, how are you going to know the false gospel and false teachers if you don't know the truth of God's word? You've got to read it on your own. And so if you're not reading the scripture regularly, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, chances are you have an earthly or a partisan worldview. If you're not reading the scripture verse by verse, I'm not talking about Christian books. I'm not talking about devotionals. I'm talking about reading God's word. I'm talking about like getting your Bible and opening it and reading it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. I, I, there's nothing wrong with Christian books and devotionals, but I really think, man, there's nothing better than Satan likes than to get us out of God's word and reading something else. You need to be reading the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, so that you're reading the scripture in context, so that you know what the Bible has to say, so that you know what all the scripture has to say about every topic. And the chances are, if you're not doing that, 
I'm just going to lovingly tell you, you probably have an earthly worldview or you have a partisan worldview, not a godly or a biblical worldview. You know what you'll find when you read the scripture verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and you do that regularly, you'll begin to see that you're kind of empathetic towards both sides of the aisle. Like in week one, we said, we're not a people of either or, we're a people of both and. We don't pick sides, we come alongside everyone and we point them to Jesus. Not a platform, not a party, we point people to a person, to Jesus. But what you'll begin to realize when you're spending regular time in the scriptures, you begin to be kind of sympathetic to both sides of the aisle. To the right, you're, you're, you're sympathetic and, and you love the stand on conviction. But then, on the left side of the aisle, you kind of are sympathetic, you're empathetic towards the compassion the left is sometimes known for. And as a Christian, we don't get to abandon either. It's why we said we're a people of both and. It's why we said in week one, we've got to reframe the issues and the questions because we're a people of both and. And so as you spend time in the scripture, you'll begin to be empathetic, sympathetic towards both sides of the aisle. Let me give you some examples. We've talked about some of these in the course of the series, but I want to bring them up again. Because when you're reading the scripture, you'll begin to have a heart for people who are oppressed. You'll begin to be empathetic towards their story, to the poor, to the prisoner, to the orphan, to the widow to those in our country who are saying they're oppressed. You may not see it, you may not understand it, but you'll begin to be more and more empathetic to, towards their story because the scripture says, learn to do right, defend the cause of the oppressed. And so here as a people of both in, we're not only passionate about defending the cause of the oppressed when it comes to systemic racism, but we're also passionate about defending the cause of the oppressed in terms of the unborn. Both sides of the aisle. I'm passionate about both. And so today you'll see we're promoting the art of freedom because we wanna help those who are oppressed in sex trafficking. But there's also a table out front with a petition where you can sign to help make Lubbock a sanctuary city for the unborn. Because we're passionate about both. The scripture determines our stance, not a political party, not an ideology. The scripture determines our stance every time. And if you're reading the scripture regularly, here's what you'll begin to see happen. Here's what will happen. Like it says in Romans 12, you'll begin to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and you'll begin to think like a Christian. You'll begin to have what the scripture calls the mind of Christ as you read the scripture regularly. So the truth is truly true. And then finally, the truth is truly satisfying. Jesus says, I've got water, and if you drink it, you will never thirst again. And the woman says, I need that water because I am so thirsty. I need that, that peace, that satisfaction, Jesus, that you're talking about. I need that abundant life and that eternal life that you're saying, I'll find if I'll drink the water from you. I need that Jesus. And Jesus says, you will never thirst again. And then Jesus, watch this, addresses and confronts 
the darkness in her life with the truth, with the light. He gets in her business. He starts dealing with the pain, with the brokenness, with the wounds. Several weeks ago, many of you know my oldest son, Levi, broke his arm. Very first play, very first game of his middle, fo- middle school football season. We just sat down, uh, you know, it was a cold night, freezing cold night. We, we just got blankets on and everything. And we just sat down, first play. I'm not joking, like very first play, very first game. He goes down, he gets hit, he goes down, he puts his arm down and snaps the growth plate in his wrist. So I go down the field and uh, they're showing it to me and it's, I mean, jacked up. I mean, it is out of place. It looks nasty. And uh, it's one of those where you think the bone could just pop through the skin at any moment. It just looks that bad. And, and they told me, they said, hey, it's either broken or dislocated. And I was like, great, if it's dislocated, you know, in the old days, right? In the olden times, you just pop that thing back into place and you go right back and play, right? And they're like, no, we, we can't do that anymore. Uh, so you're gonna have to take him to the emergency room. So we take him to the emergency room. And it's, you know, all out of place and the adrenaline's wearing off. So it's starting to hurt, you know, now. And, and so they give him some pain meds and then they, they, they're, they're going to have to reset it. And so they said, hey, we're going to uh, put him under because this is going to be painful. It's going to be bad. And so we're going to put him under um, so that we can reset this bone and cast it. And they said, you know, normally we, we take him in another room, you know, to do that. Are you okay with that? And they're like, no, we'll, we'll stay with him. And they're like, sir, this is rough. Like, when we pop this thing back into place, it's nasty. Um, it sounds terrible. And it's just normally best for parents to not be in the room. That happens. They're like, no, no, we got it. You know, we're good. And they're like, okay. So they put him under, they take his arm, they take his wrist and boom, they snap it back into place. And you could hear it. I promise you could probably hear that in the parking lot. You could hear the bones and the cartilage and everything rubbing against it itself, right? And it being popped back into place so that they could cast his arm. Why do they do that? Why, why would they... Bring more pain. He was out cold. He doesn't remember anything. He thinks he was, he had a dream of playing Josh Young in Fortnite or something like that. But, but why would they do that? Because the healing and the recovery that he needs comes from addressing the wound. You've got to address it head on. You've got to get in there and fix what's wrong. And so they pop that wrist back into place. They cast it up and it heals. But the healing comes from addressing the wound, addressing the brokenness. And that's what Jesus does. And her life is changed forever. And she says, come meet this man who told me everything I did. Wait, I thought you needed living water. I thought you needed the living water. She said, I got it. How did you get it? He told me everything I ever did. That's how. That's how I got the living water. Because he brought the light into the darkness. And he fixed what was broken. But in order to fix it, he had to address it. And so the living water that this woman was craving was the truth of God coming into her life and bringing the healing to the brokenness that had been in her life. Jesus said this chapters later in John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you are not a believer in Jesus and you were kind of reject and scoff at this whole idea of an absolute standard of right and wrong, I listen, it's where the freedom lies. It's where healing lies. It's in the truth that will set you free. It's why you should want it to be true. Even if you just can't get there, it's why you should want it to be true. 
Because absolute truth says there's freedom, there's joy, there's satisfaction, there's healing when you submit to it. James 1 verse 25, the brother of Jesus said this, but if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free and you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. As you look into the perfect law and you listen to it and you do what it says, God will bless you for doing it. We said this last week, I'm going to say it again this week. To experience God's best, you have to do things God's way. This is the living water. And Jesus says, if you'll do things my way, you get the living water. You'll never thirst again. You get my best. And the great news is that God's best is at the exact same time your ultimate satisfaction and joy. It's abundant life. It's eternal life. That's why the psalmist wrote in Psalm 19, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. The law of God, the commands of God, the truth of God, the psalmist says, are sweet. They are sweeter than honey. They revive my heart. They bring joy to my soul. That's what God's word, his truth will do in your life. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says about the word of God that it brings blessing, joy, delight, freedom, and comfort. And that's what this woman experienced in John chapter four, when Jesus brought the truth into her life, when Jesus got up in her business, when Jesus shined the light on the darkness in her life. She said, this man changed my life. I got living water as he told me everything I ever did. Because the truth is truly satisfying. Jesus, watch this, shared conviction, clothed in compassion. And as his followers, as citizens of heaven, we share conviction, clothed in compassion. In Colossians chapter three, Paul writes, clothe yourself with the compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. So we aren't proud. We aren't rude. We empathize. We sympathize. Otherwise, in the words of Paul, we're just a clanging symbol. It's just noise. Truth without love is just noise. It's hurtful. It's mean. But grace and truth, that brings healing. That brings satisfaction. It's what we need. And so we stand for biblical conviction, clothed in Christ-like compassion. Jesus' approach made all the difference. It wasn't necessarily what he said, it was how he said it. And it was the love in his eyes. And so we preach, we post with compassion, brokenness, humility, because the gospel is offensive enough. We don't wanna add to it. The gospel is offensive enough. And so we are people, citizens of both ends. Grace 
and truth, compassion and conviction, because truth without grace is mean. But watch this, grace with truth is medicine. And I'm sick, you're sick, our city is sick, our country is sick, and we need the medicine of grace and truth, compassion and conviction. Let's pray. God, I pray that today you would move in our hearts and convince us that your word is truth and that it will set us free. It's the healing, it's the freedom that we long for. So God, I pray we would embrace the light. We would run into the light. We would embrace the conviction of the Holy Spirit today. You would give us a heart for your word that we might be transformed and set free by your word. And God, I pray you would make us a people of both and, a people of grace, a people of truth, that we wouldn't abandon biblical conviction, but at the same time, we wouldn't abandon Christ-like compassion. So God, in this moment, would you convince us in our hearts that your truth is what we need, that we need the light and we would step into the light. God, give us the grace, the humility to step into the light where the darkness can be exposed. It's in your name we pray.